This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And speaking of the union, Jay, I believe we have a new union member. He goes by the name of Andrew Hammond. Welcome to the union, Andrew. And I believe he has joined us over at Discord. Is it uh, Captain George Hamilton? Is that the name? I'm thinking of. Uh, he's. Uh, he, I'm assuming that they're connected. I assume when one person joins the, the the union and then a new person pops into the Discord, that they're somehow related. Right. Could be George Hamilton the third, not Captain George Hamilton. George Hamilton the third is the uh, is the name. It's hard to. I like it when people use their names. I'm not gonna like inst- inflict some sort of like rule where you have to use your name, but it's hard to keep track of people. When they start going with uh, yeah. with well, crazy you know, names, we believe in uh, you know being double masked. So you could join you could join Patreon with one name and then come over to Discord with a different name. I feel like there should be a parentheses, also known as. <laughs> uh, joining us this week, one of our patrons. He's been here before. He's back again. Welcome, Jeff Gentis. Hi guys, how's it going? Good. You were here last year in the year of COVID, the first year of COVID, COVID year one. What was your pick then? I was, um, I sat in on the uh, round table for 1991, the albums of 1991. Oh, the 91. Okay. So you didn't have, you didn't, this is your first pick? This is my first pick. Okay. I jacked up for, I'm going to say a full 12 months. <laughs> I remember that you were on, but I, I thought it was for a pick, but no, this is great. This is your, you are, uh, you're tearing off the bandaid. Getting the first pick out there, you'll have, uh, you know, now another year to contemplate. You can put together a spreadsheet. You can uh, start a oh. sixty-four team tournament, trying to figure it t- figure it out. Done and uh, done. I know lots <laughs> of people have different methods for picking their uh, their albums. So, without further ado, why don't you share with the listeners your pick for this episode? So today we're going to be discussing Brian Jonestown Massacre. Uh, give it back that is their sixth studio album uh came out in 1997 it featured prominently in the documentary dig mm-hmm. about brian jonestown massacre and the dandy warhols um and for me i think it's the best summation of what they're all about and we'll i guess we'll hear from you guys as to what they're all about <laughs> is any good well and we have um talked about the dandy warhols it was a long time ago it was like year two mm. that we uh that we talked about the dandy warhols um but it's nice we'll get into it but there's a nice uh um crossover between the record that we talked about which was the dandy warhols come down that came out in uh 1997 same as this year or same as this record um but we yeah that was uh March of 2012, episode 67. Talk some dandies. Wow. With yeah. the first hundred. 
and we'll get into it, but this album even has, you know, a uh, mm-hmm. call it a response song to one of the. Yes, dandies. it does. So how did you just, dis- how'd you get into Brian Jonestown Massacre? Purely from the documentary. Um, I had had a track from a, a sampler. Um, it was off one, the, the 2003 album. Um, and I just, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, when you get a bunch of samplers and you try to put the artists together, I kind of put them in a playlist and then you go back after a couple of years and you're like, Hey, this song, you know, maybe that's worth actually pursuing, you know, this artist like full blown album and whatnot. I hadn't gotten to that point yet with them. I just saw the documentary and um, even though it's not um, a way to sell, uh, sell someone on them being great people, I just, I liked what I heard. And, um, you know, from there, I think I bought the, um, you know, still a little basic then, you know, still in my mid twenties, I bought the best of, um, really like that. And then, um, after a while just started, um, getting into, um, you know, especially their pre 2008 discography. Um, and I've kept up with it since though, you know, once, once they fell off e-music, which used to be a way that I'd get new music, um, I'd stop listening to them as well. But um, that was it. I've seen them three times um, and and just love them. So I feel like I also got in or I was I'm aware of the name, but the first time I actually heard them was the documentary. I also feel like the follow up record Strung Out in Heaven, which came out in 98, I me- like instantly know that album cover. Hmm. It, I, I don't know if it got pushed more um, because it was on TBT. And this is also the time then Guided by Voice was on TBT. Mm. Um, but I just remember seeing that around record stores. And, and I don't know if I listened to it at the time, but um, I definitely remember seeing documentary. We might have even gone to the theater to see it jd have you, you've seen the documentary right i have i don't remember where i saw it i feel like we might have gone to like the theater in bexley that showed like art films and documentaries mm. to go see it because that was where i saw like the wilco um documentary mm. and that's where i I've, i saw a bunch of music documentaries there because that place always it's like one of those like little one-off arty lo, arty places uh that shows stuff like that it's on amazon prime now yep because i i gave it a rewatch and prep for this to try to rekindle the old magic and a lot of that uh is if i remember correctly is about this record it's them it's not like they show the full songs but there's like snippets of songs from this record i think they're in the studio making yeah and it's not like right it's not like about the making of the album though right album is um, if you know what you're looking for, you're like, oh yeah, this is kind of in the center of the film, one right. way or another. It's 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 more about the relationship between the two bands, the Danny Warhols and, and Brian Jonestown Massacre, which uh, neither of the <laughs> the bands involved seem to have very nice things to say about the documentary afterwards. Oh, really? uh, yeah, um, just that it you know that they that the the filmmaker needed a narrative and they created one out of the footage. Right. And uh, that it's not necessarily representative of their relationship. Anywho. Yeah. 
So this record came out October 7th, 1997 on Bomp Records. Had you listened to this record, Jay? Have you ever heard had you ever heard it before? No, I was only familiar with the band from the from the movie. Gotcha. Same as me. Um so for this record, the lineup is Anton Newcomb on vocals, guitar, bass, drums, keyboards, and sitar. Matt Hollywood on bass, vocals, and guitar. And if I understand correctly, like that's basically the the songwriting duo for the band. Right. Um, it used to be a split a bit more, but it seems like Anton did more of the songwriting on this one. I think the only song that Matt Hollywood wrote was um, track nine, uh, Not If You Were the Last Dandy on Earth. Right. Uh, but did contribute Which, other parts. Yeah, we'll get into it. But I mean, it's just funny yeah. that he's the one who wrote that track. Right. Um, so we have Jeff Davies on guitar, Peter Hayes on guitar, Joel Gian on percussion, Miranda Richards on vocals and guitar, Jesse Tegelman on drums, Adam Hamilton on drums, and Ragust on flute. I don't know who Ragust is, but... Uh, it looks like August, but it starts with an R. Rog, but Ragus doesn't sound right. It's 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 guy has to have more flair. Yeah, it has to be Ragust, especially for a flutist. For a for, yeah, exactly, a flutist or, or flautist. Oh, oh yeah, it's a flautist. <laughs> oh, you're right. Uh, yeah, you're right. Just, that call. just sounded right in my head. I don't even know for sure. No, you're right. Good job, Jay. The flautist. <laughs> Sometimes things just fall out of my head. <laughs> just It's just in there and it tumbles out at the right moment. Yeah. You're like, this sounds right. I'll say it. I don't know where job. I have that information from, but there, it's in there. Um, so we did not get any comments over at Patreon. People were scared. They were intimidated by this record. And uh, they decided, they, get, they voted, but they did not... Uh, did not leave any comments. They were waiting. They want to hear what we have to say and what Jeff has to says have to says have to has to say about this record. So uh, just a little bit of overall history about this, and then we'll get into the record. History of the band um, formed in San Francisco in the early '90s. Um, it's there's like a wide swath of when they actually formed. It says between '90 and '93, which Kind of leaves it open. That's a it's a wide area for when they've actually uh, formed there, and um, th- there's been um, uh, quite a few people in the band. Um, this is like we're getting into '80s metal territory with the number of people who have been in different lineups, played on different records. Um, looks like uh, you know it's been Anton. And Matt at the beginning, and then Matt drops out at a certain point. And at a certain point, Rob Campanella joins um, as sort of a permanent member, doing sort of odd instruments here and there, organs, piano, mandolins. Um, And Frankie uh, Teardrop Emerson was in the band for quite a while. Not in the last five or six years, but it, throughout the two thousands. So, a lot of people in and out of this band. Can't uh, Peter Hayes, who founded the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, 
he was in this band for a while. So, and Joel Gian, the the percussionist slash tambourinist, he's mm-hmm. been pretty consistent, and he's one of the people pictured on the album cover and takes um, center stage during their concerts as a tambourinist. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Listen, I've never seen a better one. Mm. Ian Asbury shakes a pretty good tambourine. <laughs> I gotta say, on the hip now, baby. On the hip, yeah, exactly. I, I, you know how there's like air guitar competitions. I want a tambourine world competition with guys like Joel Gian and Ian Asbury. <laughs> Show me your tambourine moves. Yeah, tambourinists. Uh, so that that's. That's about all I want to cover here. I want to get into this record because there's quite a bit to cover on this record. Jay, tell me one thing you liked about Give It Back! Exclamation point by the Brian Jonestown Massacre. It's a bit of a trip through the 60s. Uh, I felt like I was hearing a variety of different uh, 60s pop influences. Uh, you And some of them surprised me. Uh I guess I expected, you know, obviously the Rolling Stones, the the Brian Jones era, obviously, uh, to come through. And you hear that on, is it Malayla? Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't expect things like the birds. So the second track, This Is Why You Love Me, it sounds like a Laurel Canyon, Rickenbacker, 60s psychedelic pop song with maybe like, Ray Davies singing. So dry your eyes. I'll never lie. I'll hold you like you did. Hey, come out and play. He never did not accept the drag you down. You can rest your head. And it, you know, it's a well-written song. Um, it's got a great melody. Uh, I love how the, the guitar and the vocal are really sharp and, and uh, locked up. It's concise. Uh, so that surprised me. And you get little gems like that through the record um, that, you know, explore some different sounds as well. Um, so whoever you are, you get from you get more into like this rolling baseline heavy song which a lot of the other tracks tend to be like more sitar or acoustic guitar or beds of like guitar organ so that's a nice little surprise that pops and, and you know you, the the baseline takes center stage and has a bit of a a brit pop feel and that kind of took me to between that and sue there's this moment of the record where you you get the Jesus and Mary chain influence and maybe some British influence that, you know, early in the record, it's, it's maybe sounding more sixties American um, or Rolling Stones interpreting, you know, American music. Um, And then this, the album 
ends with you know something that's very poppy and bright sounding uh almost beach boys like with i guess it's the bonus track um originally but it's listed on the full record now what's so again, that what's that what what song do you what's the ending song it's summer oh i don't have that okay i just i have mp3s from way back um from downloaded somewhere and this one ends with their satanic majesty's yeah. second uh request so so i didn't hear that song yeah it's on the streaming they they tack it on um oh, okay it's his bonus track which makes for an interesting like journey to the end because you know the the album gets a bit experimental and all of a sudden it pops with this um this final track slash bonus track that is very bouncy and very beach boys like so uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting trip through a lot of different interpretations of I think mostly '60s influences. Um, it's I think presented with a, a bit of a garage kind of attitude. You know, none of the performances here are like you know mind blowing uh, musicianship or vocals or but it's it's done with um, I think an authentic kind of like I said, garage kind of spirit to it. You know, it sounds not overwrought, sounds fairly fresh and, um, you know, like a band that's maybe rehearsed these a bit and is getting them down on tape, not like overly polished or pristine, um, which I think brings some character to it too. Um, and that it doesn't get too, I think with the layering on some of this stuff, it could, it, it could get very um, kind of artificial sounding. And I think they do a pretty good job of keeping it feeling, you know, real and honest and, um, you know, a bit raw. So that, that's some of the stuff that I liked on it. What about you, Tim? Well, I think this record at, at the start through the first, maybe like seven, nine tracks is just really strong in its, interpretation and and homage to 60s psychedelia psychedelia um you know the obvious one is the, is the stones with during the brown jones era which you mentioned um but there's a, a lot of interesting stuff going on that isn't just stones you mentioned like the birds and and some of that kind of stuff i found um when they were a little bit more bass uh, driven when it had a groove like whoever you are that bass riff that starts out whoever you are i mean that could have been off a verve album yeah. in the 90s I was hearing connections to, you know, you listen to this and you go, oh, they're just doing a, a you know, Stones ripoff kind of thing. 
But when you start to like think about what was happening in the in the nineties with regards to bands dipping back into psychedelia and 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 what would become actually neo psychedelia, um, I could hear their contemporaries who were off doing different things like the verb. I mean, there's some elements that reminded me of the Stone Roses. Um, there were there's things that bands afterwards that I'm sure were maybe were influenced by this band, like the Black Angels, or um, uh, who was the other one I was thinking of uh, that kind of had this kind of feel. But just I I, I think I, I the first couple listens I was a little bit like not overwhelmed, underwhelmed. I guess is the word. The opposite of over is under. Um, and then it started to click with me like, oh, okay, I get I, I get where this fits in. I mean, and I know that Anton Newcomb is like really kind of a character and is a very in very uh, unique individual hearing all that he and Matt Hollywood do in terms of like layering guitars and, and layering sounds. Um, so there are, what's interesting is there are certain songs where I don't necessarily love what they're doing vocally or sometimes not even a vocal really but the music to me is so interesting and they find like the right groove which is what i think is so hard for sometimes for bands is that they can't they just can't find the right vibe and they absolutely nail the right vibe and it it sounds good which i i was worried that you know a lot of the album covers for brian jonestown massacre look like local band covers so I was a little bit worried about the fidelity of the record. Um, but this says tangible. Um, what does it say on the cover? Tangible quality stereo or something like that. In red, in red, yellow and blue. It, it's so like small and squishy. I can't even read it. Right. Um, what does it say? Tangible custom stereo. Sorry. Uh-huh. I don't even know what that means. What is tangible means you can touch it. How do I touch? How do I touch this? But neither here nor there. Um, I think that they cover a lot of interesting ground, both reinterpreting and creating new sounds. Um, And I think this works in a lot of ways as a record that I know that there was a push, you know, get them on TVT, have a single probably at that point. But this works well for me to just put it on and to just let it play. And not worry about where I'm at at any particular point. Um, so there was a, there was a lot of stuff that worked. I mean, there's so many elements you can pull out. You can hear a little bit of Velvet Underground. You can hear a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, but I think the songwriting is strong enough on this that it doesn't matter that there's some obvious touchstones that they they kind of make it their own, which makes it interesting. So what what works best for you, Jeff? I really like the sequencing. The, mm-hmm. There's a there's a nice degree of variation. Um, it does help with the bonus track. Uh, <laughs> is a, is a good one. So um, I would I'd recommend that on Spotify. The I, I think they also in addition to everything you guys covered, like ninety six percent of it. Uh, but there's also just layers of shoegaze, um, especially yeah. the, their earlier albums were, I mean. Um, you know, there's one called Methadrone, which is like droney kind of shoegaze, right? And, and it's a little bit like, you know, they've 
something like um the song sue is like borders onto i think shoegaze and it sounds you know with a little bit of like what wooden ships sound like too um albeit without the like full-blown um i don't know stoned groove that some mm-hmm. of the wooden ship songs have uh you know that whoever you are's track i think that's the one i said i would say to somebody okay if you like this track you will like this band it's not their best but it's the most like emblematic i mean to the extent that a band with you know 300 songs to their name is um has a singular touchstone song um but but yeah everything else it just seems like yeah you it's it's almost like they just they throw their influences out there with their name and the first few times you're like okay well this is great we're now we're you know the first track is supersonic they're going to india india you know they're they're going to do the the beatles and stones mid 60s thing here but um they just update it and they they do layer some of the so much else that um and in particular i think is um one of their more consistent efforts and and one of the most varied Satellite to me when I heard that, and then I found out that Peter Hayes, who was in Black Robo Motorcycle Club, was on this record. I was like, well, he basically created that band out of that song. Like that's what Black Robo Motorcycle Club sounds like on their like their first couple records is is that sound. Um and that's not easy to get. I mean, that's that sort of jangle and that rhythm and all the factors in a song like that are are not you have to be able to play to to get that vibe and correct me if i'm wrong but they recorded this pretty quickly like this was done over like yeah like like a a weekend weekend. yeah Yeah. give or take one or two tracks but um but yeah i mean and for what it's worth just for for other folks to have a touchdown my favorite i agree on the black rebel motorcycle club and my favorite album is to take them on on your own um, mm-hmm. and so this, his contributions on this, on one hand, it's hard to know unless you know it's him. Uh, but once you do, yeah, it does make a lot of sense. I also think there's just like a degree of notwithstanding how Anton is in the documentary, there's elements of them not taking themselves seriously. The, like the song number one hit jam, I just feel like is this just straight up, you know, it's an irony play. Um, but yet you're, you know, with a few listens, you're like, I'm just going to ignore the, what they're doing lyrically here <laughs> and just sit back with it. Well, and in terms of not taking themselves seriously, we have to touch on not if you were the last dandy on earth, yeah. which is a direct response to not if you were the last junkie on earth, which came out the same year, um, which is funny, but essentially the not, not if you were the last junkie on earth is about Anton Newcomb. And then this is their response to that, but not 
in a, like a very it's more of a playful way from what i've read it's not necessarily like it's not a diss track you know this no. isn't like a hip-hop war between these uh two bands um but you can get that like light-hearted um vibe from from that and and some of the other stuff where they mess around a little bit i did you mentioned about the sequencing so because i didn't have that last bonus song i did feel like the end of the record got a little like in the mud sure um because you got the devil may care mom and dad don't and then their satanic majesty's second request which ends with i, I really like the music that's in that it's got this cool like throbbing bass thing that's going on but it's another jim jones quote and we just had Jim Jones. Jim Jones has been on the, sh- the show now twice in the last three weeks. Um, he's like a guest host. He's It's it's a little unnerving, to be quite honest, because I don't know if anybody knows this, but Jim Jones was a mass murderer. Uh, not a no. good dude. And this is the second band in three weeks that has included uh, audio. He's uh, the Jonestown massacre part of the name. Yeah. So I really hope in... Um, because that happened in the late 70s and these bands were in the 90s. I really hope in 20 years from now, there aren't a bunch of bands throwing on uh, certain president's quotes uh, to be funny or ironic or uh, what have you, because um, it's going to make me difficult. It's going to make it difficult when my daughter's like in her early 20s and listening to uh, pop music and rock music. And I'm going to be like, God damn it. I can <laughs> tell you one of my one of my finalists was the Concrete Blonde Mexican Moon album that includes the song Jonestown too. So <laughs> it was going to come. Oh up. yeah, I looked it up. There are a ton. I mean, up to like last year, Post Malone had a song that was about Jim Jones. Like dozens of songs over the last 25, 30 years that reference Jim Jones or Jonestown or what have you. I'm like, come on, people. Yeah. Obviously, the whole you're drinking the Kool-Aid. Right? It wasn't Kool-Aid, mm-hmm. though. It was Flavor-Aid. That's what people get wrong. <laughs> they didn't use Kool-Aid. So when you use the expression, you say you've been drinking the Flavor-Aid? That's what you're supposed to say. They didn't but, use Kool-Aid. But to your point, that's become just part of our vernacular that everybody right. uses. And it's, yeah, it goes back to this horrific incident. Yep. That obviously pop culture is obsessed with. Yeah, it's it's... It's very strange. Um, I don't understand it, it is. to be quite honest, but um, what didn't work for you on the record, Jay? Uh, you started to touch on it. Um, you know, the end of the record, like I said earlier, I'm glad it ends on this. It's summer, the bonus track. Now uh, I, uh, I, the devil may care and satanic majesties to me are just too droning and, um indulgent as a passive listen um it's fine but when i'm at you know kind of paying attention it, it it's a bit much um i also don't love there's some moments like you guys you guys are talking about satellite which i like the idea of that song but it's just a little too rough from a performance standpoint for me, I, I just wish it was a little sharper, especially when you come out of This Is Why You Love Me, which is very sharp sounding and together. There's just a lot of like, uh, like those two guitar parts are just so off and loose that it. I just find myself kind of, it starts to feel amateurish 
um, just in terms of the performance in that song. And I, you mentioned Black Rover Motorcycle Club. I can't, I can't help but then think about like, you know, the mid to later version of that band doing that song and how it would be like sharpened up and. Um, yeah, like on the Howl record or something like that. Yeah, just a lot more together. Um, you better love me before I'm gone is another one. Like these wailing har- two harmonicas that are kind of off key. It gets a bit painful. Um, I like the female voice in that, but then when they come in and do the harmonies, they're they're awful. Um, so there's just some, I think, performance stuff that is real loose. And I mean, I, I kind of get it from that standpoint, but it just makes for a difficult listen. Uh, number one hit jam, you know, again, not, not spectacular. So there's some down parts in this record that, you know, pull my attention and, and kind of, you know, make it diff- make it more difficult than it probably should be. You know, mm-hmm. I think when this album works well, it's it feels spontaneous and fun and, you know, uh, on point and, and you get to cover some ground, but it doesn't like go off the rails too. And when it starts to go off the rails too much um, into self-indulgence or just weird uh, weirdness or just rough performances, um, it starts to lose me. I agree with you on some of the out of tune, too much noodling. Like Servo has it as well. I like that song. Yeah. But like with Satellite, there's like the guitar just doesn't stop. Yeah. There's the second guitar, which I'm guessing maybe is Matt Hollywood. I'm not sure. Um, but it just kind of goes on and on and on. Same and thing with the, with the flute in that song. It's like, okay, flute guy, take a break. <laughs> Take a breath, flautist. With editing on the flout (laughs) um so yeah there's a little bit of overindulgence in where i think maybe if you had not recorded this over a weekend maybe and i don't know how much time they spent working up the material before this or if they literally wrote it while they were you know if they just had like parts and then they put it together in a studio and recorded it um i'm not sure what the process is there but I, i i wish there was like a little bit of editing on some of the tracks. Cause I feel like at the core, like satellite and servo stuff like that, there's like, there's a good song there. It just needed to be reined in just a little bit. Cause I don't know that Anton has the, um, 
the kill your darlings sort of mentality where he's going to be like, oh, maybe we overdid it with this nonstop noodling guitar for three minutes. Maybe we could cut that back just a little bit. Um, and I, I, yeah, I agree with you. Like number one hit jam. I like how with Salam, you just get like a minute and 40. Like, okay, yeah. that's a cool little interlude. Like do that length with number one hit jam or the devil may care stuff like that. Like keep those. If you're going to experiment, that's cool, but I don't need it for four and a half, six minutes. Yeah. Like that, that's a lot to me. Um, cause I feel like this is a band that's made for vinyl records and this record is like the original cut is 55 minutes. And if you're telling me there's another song, that's going to put it closer to 60 minutes. So now you're looking at like a double vinyl and I don't need a double vinyl from this band. I need like a tight 44 minute long record. Um, Cause I feel like that's like, this sounds like a band that I want to hear the crackle of the vinyl as I'm playing it. Like that they're made for yeah. that. Well, and that's the music they're, they're paying homage to too. I mean, it's right. Most of these bands we talked about wrote pretty sharp, pop songs and if they indulged it was rare and you know on a record or for a song occasionally so it's a little weird to hear like an homage to that style of music but then hear it kind of meander and go all over the place for a long time right like i'm thinking back to i need to double check but if i you know i i got a lot of exile on main street with this and if i go look back you know, a lot of these songs are 220, 259, 330. There's a couple of four minute songs, but like 236. A lot of tight, tight songs. There's nothing. There's one minute. Let It Loose is the only one that's over five minutes. Everything else is basically four minutes or less. And a lot of them are, are under three minutes. Um, I mean, if you can if you can give me tumbling dice in three forty five, and then also <laughs> sweet black angel or uh, in in two fifty four, there's there's a lot because there's a lot of like really stripped down blues country on that record because it's a double album. I I feel like that this record give it back would have benefited just a little bit. Um, is there anything that doesn't work for you, Jeff, on this record or things that you would adjust? Yeah, I think it's for me. I mean, the there's Satanic Majesty's second request. It's fine to listen to once, but I don't, I don't need the Jim Jones audio bed. It's just sort of it's hard to ignore. Um, right. And for me, I'm just somebody who doesn't, you know, who who really, I do my own stripping away of albums. You know, artists be damned. So Salam, I would, I'm just not an instrumental person. So I. I'd pull that out. So I hadn't been, I hadn't been listening to that till uh, preparing for this episode. Um, you know, Jay mentioned the, the birds um, tie into track two. I really like that song. This is why you love me. And my wife who's putting her own focus on to start seeing like whether or not she's, you know, using this as a reason to figure out whether she should care about this band. And she watched the documentary with me recently. She just said, Oh, this is just, I feel a whole lot better. And I was like, Oh, damn it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, um, you know, she made it a little worse. I, I think there's, you know, there's a couple, 
other things like i don't know not to argue against straw men but you know there's the notion of like he's in france san francisco he affects a fake british accent for a lot of his singing i'm just like eh, you know it 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 bothers some folks it's for me it's like i don't i don't mind um and then there's the folks where it's like you know there's always a question of like you know are you wearing your influence is too much on your sleeve or, you know, the fact that we can recognize where you're, you know, what you're drawing from, how does that, um, how does that cut? And, you know, it depends. I feel like it depends on, on, you know, I, I find it hard to separate from how you feel about the band itself, you know, whether or not you're going to blame them for being too influenced or too derivative in a sense, you know, it doesn't happen for bands. I feel like who are, you know, like how many different British bands are pulling from Joy Division or Gang of Four. Right. And you don't hear, you're like, oh, you know, I could get into the editors, but for like, do I need another Ian Curtis voice? You know, just like people don't really, you don't really hear that. You know, I I think it's one of those things where like, this is just a good rock band. And this is what, you know, good rock sounds like. And yeah, a lot of the good rock was done in the sixties and people are, you know, building on it and, um, adding to it i think um so i'm I, anyway so anyway that's that's at least <laughs> those are not critiques you made but right. critiques i've heard right and i i totally get that and i don't think i think maybe i would have been more skeptical in the 90s but i've waned on worrying about whether bands are showing their influence too much i mean mm. look at the black crows the black crows were have mm. definitely strong influences but they were able to turn it into something really interesting and unique, even though you can draw that back definitely to particular bands. Um, I don't think it matters as much because, you know, a lot, you talk about the sixties. I mean, that's really like the second decade of rock and roll. And there's at a certain point, you know, the seventies did happen eighties. Like there's going to be some, homage and eventually like things are going to start churning where you're going to take stuff from that happened and start repurposing it in a different way um so to me like yeah i hear certain bands and certain sounds but it's no different than you know you could hear what oasis is doing and you can hear definite rips of certain Beatles songs and stuff like that i mean it's like it's kind of pointless after after a while or, you know, or else there's, you can't. Yes, you can reinvent the wheel a little bit. You can try, but there's always going to be bands that are pulled towards certain sounds and, and trying to reinterpret them. And it just it's just part of rock and roll, I think. It's just there's ebbs and flows. Yeah, I mean, the, the this band being... I guess derivative and it doesn't bother me and I'm with you. Like, I don't know if you like music I and you start getting yourself all wound up about like who's derivative of who you're going to quickly suck all the joy out of music. Right. Like just like it or don't, don't. And you, I mean, you can have reasons for it, but like don't not like something because it sounds like somebody else that it just seems silly to me. Like, so that part didn't bother me. I, I'd actually, I think my critique is more like it, I, I, I maybe want them to be more derivative. <laughs> like if you're going to do this music, like, you know, well, yeah, I, I mean, kind of do it with the, 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 the 
the craft maybe that's what i'm saying the craft of the rolling stones and the craft of the birds i would love to hear that well we'll think about like this when the stones recorded they had like the johns brothers glenn johns and annie johns in there yeah recording i mean they they sat down and like got players and mm-hmm. got guys like Nicky Hopkins and Ian Stewart and 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 those types of folks. So there's a and I get that this is made in a different universe. I mean, this is an indie, yeah, you know, sound, um, which is actually you know in some ways amazing that this is basically a big collective. I mean, there's like ten people in this band mm-hmm. um, that they're able to pull this together. I I think I read or maybe I was listening to. Oh, I know what it was. Um, I was I was listening to the classical channel because that's what I listen to now when I'm in the car, and there was a classical version of Norwegian Wood by the Beatles, and the person who was introducing the song said that the year that that out that uh, single was released, more sitars were sold in the United States than in India. Hmm. Now there's a lot of people Amazing. in India. Yeah, <laughs> in whatever 1967, 68. So the fact that the you know the few 250 million or whatever it was back then bought more sitars. I don't even know how you get a sitar in 1968 in, <laughs> in the United States, but we bought them all. Wow, because we heard Norwegian wood. There's probably only one place in town to buy a guitar. Where would you buy a sitar? Exactly. It's not like you go on Amazon in 1968 and order up a sitar. Right. Like where are they getting? Some dude saw that coming. And was yeah. like, I am going to buy up all the sitars <laughs> and ship them wow. over the United States because I want to make bank. Just controlling the supply chain of sitars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's talk about. So this comes out in '97. I don't. He. I. I know the dandies got some play in '97 because of not last junkie on Earth. That was definitely an MTV video, and I feel and and. Maybe it was, and then they got another one. Bohemian Like You was the other one where I feel like they got some MTV play and radio play. I don't feel like Brian's Jones sound ever got to that level with regards to singles. So it's it's not surprising they sort of remained an underground band. I also think the the name doesn't help, (laughs) to be honest. You know, if you're going to go from, in 1997, from the Foo Fighters to um the latest by uh dog's eye view or whatever and then oh the brian jonestown massacre i don't know that radio programmers would be jumping on that in mainstream you know college radio is all over it they're playing all these records but i don't know that mainstream radio wants to take a chance well i mean john cougar concentration camp didn't get any airplay so (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah the name does not help Mm-mm. Uh, the Danny Warhols just have a little more polish too. You know, the vocals right. are a little tighter and just the production's better. Um, you know, the singer is a good looking guy that probably didn't hurt either. Um, for them, Courtney Taylor Taylor. Us. So you can kind of see, you know, what the difference here from a pop standpoint pretty clearly. His face is like molded from. Some sort of Greek uh, god, uh, 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 I don't know, statue. Like, have you ever looked at him? It's terrifying how good-looking that man is. 
It's like it's just like this jawline of like this chiseled jawline. It's kind of like what um, Evan Dando looked like before whatever happened to him. No, that's a good call. That's exactly the same thing. You got the cheekbones Mm -hmm. and then they cut back in to somehow it's strong jaw. It's. It's it's too much. It's unnerving. (laughs) It's not fair. No, it's not fair. I got got a head head like an eggplant. (laughs) Seriously, I look like I look like Joe Pesci's uh, offspring with uh, with. Uh... Also, Any... I mean, I was just going to say that it's also just a level of self-sabotage that, you know, it was it took all of, you know, the A&R guy at TVT to get them signed to that label and they weren't doing themselves any favors. I can't imagine. A, I don't hear a single going well yeah. either with this band. So, right. Yeah. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, let us go back and fix that for you. We'll polish it up. And and <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, why weren't they bigger? It's it really is like they didn't want to be yep. <laughs> in some sense. And yeah. I'm not saying in like some kind of like glorified uh, they don't want to be a sellout way. They just think. And it might have been like a little bit of a. Um, a vulnerability, a feel of a fear of being exposed and trying to just, you know, ensure that you never get to that level. Mm. yeah and i there is a i mean this is the 90s so there was still like this anti-sellout mentality as well yeah yeah um you also you mentioned something jeff that you're making me think of too you mentioned that you know there's moments in this record where they don't take themselves seriously and there's a bit of tension there i think for bands that like have that as part of who they are then struggle with success means i'm taking myself seriously so it's like there's this not wanting to give into that which makes them who they are um but also sabotages them in some ways of ever being like commercially successful but it sounds like they keep they've stayed together and continue to tour and put records out for a while right yeah and anton cleaned up and they seem to have um had some overall maturity with age and they still crank out there i think that they're you know they've sort of built up some popularity overseas and mm. when i've seen them i've seen them at you know bowery uh not bowery ballroom uh webster hall uh terminal five in new york places that you know by comparison's sake i've seen japan droids and the national at um uh at, at some of these places so you know there's decent side crowds there's also the, the random note these dudes are, these are large dudes. They're all like gotta be six foot or above. <laughs> it's kind mm. of a, it's kind of a funny part of the collective, I guess, but it's, it's just a funny look. They have, you know, four or five guitars. Um, you know, some guy that sometimes there's a guy playing organ who then, you know, picks up a guitar as well, which, you know, kind of makes you think, I mean, you guys have more of the being in a band experience than I do, but it's like, what what makes you go from three guitars to four <laughs> like, <laughs> like what's that trigger it's a little bit like if you look at a guy who's got eight gold rings yeah and you're like well i'm not interested obviously seven to eight <laughs> you got to complete the set but i want to know when you, you went from four to five <laughs> what was what was the thought process there and with this band i can only think it was like a drug connect <laughs> to yeah. figure out as to why they go from three to four guitars i don't know how you get to three so four is like yeah. Uh, I don't know. We got to ask Dave Grohl because they have three guitar players and I can't figure out why. 
Um, they see, so yeah, you mentioned, I mean, they pretty much put out a record. There was a break between 2003 and 2008 where they didn't have any records out. Um, but they've had a record out basically every year up until 2019. And I believe from what I read, he, Antoine Newcomb lives in Germany now with his family. He's got like two kids and you mentioned about him getting like sort of cleaned up. Um, seems to be on a, you know, positive tip now. And, um, yeah, there's a lot to cover with this in terms of if you want to get into this band, there's a lot of material. I just think that their, um, <laughs> their album titles, I mean, you got the 2008 album, My Bloody Underground, and then 2010's Who Killed Sgt. Pepper, and uh, Thank God for Mental Illness from 1996, and uh, some EPs, like Mini Album Thingy Wingy, <laughs> just Fistful of Bees. That sounds like a Guided by Voices uh, song. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> It would be three. It'd be like thirty seconds, and it'd be amazing. Um, let's get into our overall ratings for this record: worthy album, better EP, and decent single. Where are you at, Jay? I have a seven-song EP. So, Supersonic or Supersonic. This is why you love me, Malayla. Whoever you are, Sue, Servo, and it's summer. Uh, I think that hits for me like the more song, tighter song oriented stuff. You get a few, you get a little bit of the Brit pop modern feel. You get, you could cover the sixties from the kinks, the birds, the Rolling Stones to the beach boys you sort of hit to me, hit on, you know, what this band does best. So that's where I'm at. I'm at a nine song album. I would take all your tracks and I would also add not a few of the last dandy on earth. And I would have my midpoint be Salam. And uh, I think that would be an interesting nine song Hold on album. A second. Not if you're the last standing on earth is not on the streaming version. It's not? What track is that? Track nine. No, track nine for me is number one hit jam. No. What? Oh, there was a 13 track version on Spotify and a 14 track. I have the, I'm listening to the 13 track version. Hurry up. Go to the song. And we'll, All right. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to, what the heck? Why would they take that song this? off? I don't know why they would take that song off. That's weird. That's like a, a point, a center point of the album. Um, but I, but then I also didn't get it's summer. So, cause I have the, like an MP3 from huh. back, way back when. So. I can talk you into a tight 246 minute song for not if your last day on earth, Jay. <laughs> that could do it. <laughs> that would bump you to eight songs. Album. I think that that's a 70s album. That's I'm four songs to, per side. I'm just trying to dig through their catalog here and see if I can find it. It's like it's like legitimately the most rocking song on the record. And well, you didn't if if you stream it today on Spotify or Apple Music, you're not gonna hear it. That's weird. Huh. Yeah, because I thought see. there were two versions when I looked for this on Spotify because I had to pull out the um, the two tracks I don't listen to. Spoiler Let's alert. Let's see. So, yeah, sometimes at the bottom, it's so dumb. If you go to Spotify and you click on an album, there's a thing at the bottom that says 
like another there's like a, an option to go to another version yeah i see what you're saying like i didn't check this on spotify because i had the mp3s but it's a 13 track album on spotify which is what i have 13 tracks but there's no not if you were the last dandy on earth it's summer so i wonder why they swapped those songs out in and out that's maybe they felt bad now finally about writing about the, the first thing that came in my head when you told me the history of the song like what it's referencing that if it's not on there anymore that maybe that had something to do with it there's yeah i don't know if you can see but it's like the full picture without the sort of red yellow blue writing that oh. version on spotify is the 14 track it's a different album t- cover it's like that same picture yeah. and the other one is just narrowed and minimized and kind of distorted but it's a I don't know why there's two different versions of the album and two different covers and a weird track switch. I don't see that. Like I'm, I'm looking at Spotify right now. This is very exciting for our listeners to know that we're exactly. all looking at Spotify <laughs> uh, right now. So I would to... recommend to your listeners that, that uh, you look for the one where the picture is the full frame of the album. Is the band name like different or is there any little detail like, that makes it different um, in the from a cataloging standpoint. I don't think so. I mean, well, one of it's interesting. One of them says it's a 2008 version, and the other's 1997. I wonder if there was a remastering, but then it still doesn't explain why they took out the the one out the one track that was the single. Yeah, I do, I don't understand. All right, well, uh, as we as we have encountered before, uh, the wonders of Spotify have created a conundrum. <sighs> Sometimes when you uh, you dig these bodies up, then all, you don't find all the bones. <laughs> there's a there's a tibia missing. <laughs> yeah, seriously. How'd they get around without that tibia? Um, where do you land, Jeff? I'm at the worthy album. Um, you know, twelve of the fourteen work for me. I, I would just I skip uh, Salam the instrumental, and then their Satanic Majesty's second request. Um, and and that type of uh batting average is is pretty solid for them they're they're usually above 500 um and for this album i felt like when i was trying to pick which one of the 90s i mean this is basically my favorite band um and trying to figure out which one of the 90s would i want to introduce people to i think this one because it is a good summary of everything is the way to go and it's also just track for track um you know i, I think they hardly miss um you know, for folks early, the earlier um, the earlier albums are better for it, but if, if they keep going, you know, stuck in heaven um, and, you know, my favorite is the 2001, the bravery, repetition and noise. Um, and again, it's, just, it's varied, but it's very solid start to start to finish. Um, and yeah, and if you keep going, you're going to hit some, you know, some little bit of electronic experimenting, um, some rock still, still mixed in. And it's, you know, it's varied. It's just not nearly at this level of, um, you know, it's like they're building on what they built as opposed to just, you know, kind of reinterpreting the 60s. And the reinterpreting the 60s is my, my favorite uh, era. Well, our patrons were split 50-50 between Worthy Album and Better EP. So, half-sided with UJ and half-sided with me and Jeff. 
But uh, we'll never know if Jay will upgrade his uh, EP to an album because he'll never be able to hear that one song. <laughs> I found it. It's on a uh, singles collection. Called, it's called The Singles Collection, 91 hmm. to 2011. So you can find it. It's just not you can't hear it in the record i wonder if that's why it was taken out because sometimes when things are in compilations they're missing because spotify is stupid uh or compilations are incomplete because the songs are in the album and they like blank them out in the compilation usually they'll gray them though you know right right you'll see the listing it'll just be grayed out so you can't play it true just like just absent i don't know weird I don't think we've seen that one before. We've seen some weird stuff. I don't know that we've seen that before. We've seen some weird stuff. I am shocked that they have a single with 47 million spins. What's that? What single is that? Animony. It's the, their most popular song has 47 million spins. Oh, weird. I wonder was if that was on like a, a TV sound. show or something. I don't know. Straight Up or Down was the one that's the um, Boardwalk Empire intro. Oh, really? Yeah. That is 6.8. That's like, uh, and then Vand Handy Madem is 10 million. I don't know. That's uh, not a language I speak. (laughs) But they got some spins. He's probably made a couple bucks, good 10 or 12 bucks off to Spotify with those those 47 million. Sitars aren't going to buy themselves. No, they will not. Got to get them imported now. And all the supply chain issues. Gonna take a while, nice. Jeff. Thank you for bringing this album to us. I'm glad, I'm glad we got to talk about this band. I'm, I'm real glad too. And it's interesting, like going through like the picks, you know, for whatever it's worth. I'll fucking indulge for 30 seconds. Yep, you know, the, the, the ones that are, a lot of the episodes that are interesting for me are ones where I only listen to a few tracks of the album and then like I haven't thought about the rest of the album in you know 25 plus years. You guys go back and review something, I'm like, oh, I've I've been ignoring good tracks, right? Like it's like a personal journey of figuring out if I, you know stuff goes from an EP to a worthy album for me after a couple of decades go by, and I'm you know no longer relying on my um, the opinion I had when I was 15. And I was thinking about trying to introduce a few of those to to my pick, but then I was just like, you know what? I'd rather you know rather than making an interesting episode or try to find one where Jay and Tim are going to disagree and it's interesting. I just decided like you know what? I want to try to bring some joy. <laughs> This is a band I love. And, sure. you know, if you find, if a few people listen to it and say, you know what, I, I should, I should get into it and they end up feeling the same way. I think that will be uh, where I can do the most good through my pick. Excellent. Well, I like, I like when we get to, uh, to bands that are in the consciousness of the nineties, but we haven't, they're not like big, but they're known. Yeah. And I haven't really spent a lot of time with them. Jay hasn't spent a lot of time with them. So I like getting exposed to stuff that was in the ether, but we just didn't spend enough time or just didn't have enough time to get to everything. I was too busy listening to, uh, with all the trips know. to, uh, bad bath and beyond and <laughs> home Depot. We just didn't have time. We just didn't have time. Right. <laughs> Who has the time? <laughs> uh, but thank you. And, Uh, If anybody picks an album that has a Jim Jones audio quote uh, coming up, I am going to (laughs) instill a ban on uh, Jim Jones for 2022 because uh, I've got my fill. Uh, I went down a wiki hole reading about it 
because I didn't have all the details, and that's how I about, found out about the Flavor Aid versus the Kool Aid. Uh, all kinds of stuff, and apparently there's talks of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio playing in a, a movie based on his life. Oh, jeez. Uh, so that can't be good. You know, if Charles Manson gets this kind of run too, you know, this is Jim Jones is like a B version of him. So in terms of the pop consciousness, so it's right, a matter of time. Who's gonna play uh, Charlie Manson? Uh, Oscar Isaac, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Vincent Gallo, could he could he pull that off? You're taking us back me back to the time we spent trying to cast the GI Joe movie a decade before they ever made a GI Joe movie. That's right. <laughs> That's what we drove around in the van, like van the, trying the, to you know whatever the early 2000s were like. You know what? We'd be badass if they made a GI Joe movie, and then we started like riffing on how to cast all the 80s GI Joe characters, mm-hmm. and then they ended up making the movie, and it was like such a letdown. Yes. <laughs> It's like so everything. Take our casting advice. Nope. We had Paul Newman in that thing. <laughs> I mean, it was gonna be. It was gonna be badass. I mean, our budget was, you know, a little nuts. <laughs> it was. A, it was a lot on talent. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I, I think we did a good job. I, ha- I, I've got to have that in a in a notebook somewhere. I'll have to go dig that out because I'm pretty sure that casting list was, was bonkers because we we paid no attention to. If anybody would be interested in actually doing it, or I think we had uh, Catherine Zeta Jones as Baroness. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, they got some nobody to play Baroness. I don't. It might have been before Chicago, so you probably could have got her a little cheaper. That's true. That's true. Jeff, thank you again. Thanks, um, guys. I want to thank uh, our patrons who support us every month, like Jeff. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us pay our bills. Uh, We have 560 something episodes in the, in the uh, archive and uh, to keep those uh, percolating for people to download, we got to keep that, uh, that uh, server fed with cash. That's how it works. Got to feed, got to feed the meter every, every month. And so uh, actually we do it on a yearly basis. It's a little bit cheaper than doing it month to month. Um, but I uh, want to remind folks that uh, you can support us by going to D- the DMO Union, uh, dot, dot com website or digmeoutunion.com. It takes you to Patreon. You join us there. Become a union member. Uh, one of the A's, I don't want to say her name, but one of the A's is talking in my house. A-L-E-X-A is randomly wow. talking. Scary. Nobody's in that room. And she just started talking. <laughs> and I, I I have humanized her by calling her her. <laughs> Does everybody do that? <laughs> because it's because of the name. I should probably change the name to like Sven or something. Can you do that? Can you change the names of your? I don't know. I don't think so. Damn. You're stuck with her. Until they take over. <laughs> so digmeoutunion.com that's where you go support the podcast uh it's also where you can read the box newsletter every week two new reviews of new releases from the 80s and 90s relevant bands that we cover uh movies books and music you can also go to digmeoutpodcast.com to sign up for the newsletter it's also where you can suggest an album which people at patreon get to vote on every month an album for us to review 
And then lastly, if you like what you heard, Apple Podcasts is the place to go to leave a positive review to stroke our massive egos. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Thank you.